Welcome to the Human Resources for Small Business podcast, presented by Zenium HR. I'm your host, Brandon Laws. Whether you're an HR professional or a small business leader, each episode of this podcast is designed to bring you the latest in technical HR and leadership at your convenience. More content is available on our website at www.zeniumhr.com. Let's dive into today's topic. Hey, it's Brandon. Welcome and thanks for the download today. In today's episode, we invited Jeff Cordes on the podcast. He's the author of Employee Retention Fundamentals, No-Nonsense Strategies to Retain Your Best People, and he's the author of Welcome to Dodge, Tales from the Frontiers of Business. You can also find him on LinkedIn. He writes several articles there, and he does a lot of speaking as well, so go to his website and check him out. In this episode, we discuss why losing top talent is a huge cost to the business and what we as business leaders can do to make sure we retain our best people. Jeff has some really interesting methodology around retention, and I think you're really going to enjoy this discussion. Hey, Jeff, it's great to have you in the podcast. Welcome. Good to be here. So, Jeff, employers, I think they're getting hit from all angles, industry professionals, business articles, they're, they're all talking about why we need to retain talent. And I think in a labor market like this one right now, where employers are really trying to fight to keep their good people and to find highly skilled people for those those unfilled jobs that they have, I wanted to ask you, what what's the monetary cost of, of losing somebody? So not only are they trying to find talent, but if they're losing talent at the same time, what's the cost to the business? There's a lot of different formulas. I take a very conservative formula to determine costs because I don't like to overstate it, but I say 25% of a person's annual salary. And I've heard estimates that go as high as three times a person's annual salary as being the cost of turning over uh, an individual to an organization. But I think beyond that, the costs are, are even becoming more and more important. And, and that is, is that people are going to get to the point where they're not going to have enough people to simply staff mm. their organization. Aside from the bottom line, if you can't get the people you need, because of your turnover, the reality is, is you're not going to be able to survive. Where's that number come from? Is it just like retraining somebody to kind of ramp them up toward that person that left was already at? Or like, are there some other factors? Is it, is it have to do the revenue a little bit? What, like, what, what does that number come from? It comes from a, a lot of different things. Lost productivity, potential lost customers because you don't have uh, an established relationship, having to pay overtime the cost of the time of your people to replace them, it loads a whole group of different factors into it. So I don't know if you're a a user of LinkedIn quite a bit, but I've seen a version of this particular meme floating around for a long time, and it goes something like this. So a CFO says, what happens if we train somebody and then they leave? And the CEO says, what happens if they don't and they stay? I always think it's kind of funny because it's like you have one person who's, you know, thinking about cutting costs and, and saying, uh, why, why should we train somebody where they're just going to leave us and take the skills elsewhere, whereas a CEO should be thinking kind of big picture and like, hey, no, we need to train somebody so they stay with us and keep producing results. Have you seen that? And what, what do you kind of think about that? I, I actually use that when I'm doing my <laughs> program, Give Your Employees Crap and Seven Other Secrets it. to Employee Retention, because yeah, what do you want? Untrained people dealing with your customers, yeah, producing your parts, that. whatever it is. The other thing is, is because growth is such a, an important thing to most employees. Training them is one of the things that's actually going to keep them 
as opposed to have them leave and go elsewhere. In your book, you mentioned that we should start classifying turnover certain ways, good, bad, and neutral. Can you give an example of each of those? I thought it was brilliant. I never really thought of it that way. Good turnover is, let's say you have a poor performer and you have to exit them from the organization. You know, that's the sort of turnover that you want to have. Poor turnover is when you have a good employee who, as a result of potentially his relationship with his supervisor, decides to leave and go elsewhere. And then neutral turnover is things, are things like retirements. Somebody, you know, decides that it's time to retire. That's something that you really can't do anything about. So I, I classify that as, an, as a neut- in the neutral category. And how should employers or HR managers, how should they be tracking this? And what do they do with that data? I believe that you have to track things on a, on a monthly basis. Mm-hmm. And I think you need to classify them as, as good, neutral, or bad turnover. And the, and the real key is, is, is you can have a, a variation as to how you do it in your organization as far as how you classify them. The key is to keep how you classify them the same. You don't want to be saying, well, one, one month this is, is good turnover and the next month it's bad turnover. Whatever standard you come up with, you want to keep the same standard because you're measuring against yourself. Yeah. And I find that if you're not measuring on a monthly basis, you can lose sight of things. Uh, so you should be tracking those numbers every month so you can see if you're starting to get an uptick. I always compare them year to year, month to month, because depending on the nature of the business, there might be some cyclical components that drive uh, turnover within an organization. If you take that data and you say, okay, year over year, maybe our bad turnover's up, what kind of conclusions could you make based on that data? Is it like, oh, we're just, we're just not hiring the right people? Or what do, you, what do you do with that? Just having the number isn't sufficient. You've yeah. got to have data such as things like exit interviews, mm. stay interviews. I'm a big proponent of just knowing what's going on and having your pulse on, on what's going on in the organization. Because I'm a believer that nobody yeah. should quit that you don't know is coming. If it takes you by surprise, that means that you're not on top of things. You mentioned stay interviews. Are you a a fan of stay interviews? I am. Mine tend to be informal stay interviews because if you make them formal, people aren't going to tell you what you need to hear. When Mm -hmm. I was an HR director, I would just start talking with people and out of the blue, I'd say, well, you know, why do you stay? Or why do you come to work every day? And just listen, because they'll tell you, they'll tell you what's important. And if you talk to enough people, you'll start to see the common threads that are important within your organization. Going over to the exit interview, so is there a a way in which you do this uh, or a certain type of employee that you do this with that's exiting? Do you do do for all types of turnover? I would not for bad turnover because you know know you're exiting someone because of poor performance. But everybody else, I always do an exit interview. Mine are informal. I don't put a form in front of somebody because as soon as you put a piece of paper in front of somebody and you ask them to put it down in writing, they'll clam up. Yeah, they will. And then the other piece I find is, is that just written an article for LinkedIn on this, is I'm a believer that when you do the exit interview, you don't want to share it with the supervisor. Because if the employee knows that you're going to share it with their supervisor, they're not going to tell you anything. Because they don't want to burn that bridge. And they ultimately want a, a recommendation or a reference. So I just take that data use it for what it is and look to see are there issues with with supervisors because if you if you let people know that their supervisor is going to hear it they won't tell you anything you spend a lot of time in the book on supervisors and you say they're basically the backbone of the organization they have a lot of control over retention what are some of the behaviors of the bad supervisors that you should probably consider making a switch 
The biggest one is uh, micromanaging. Mm. You can have a department that's stable, and then you change managers, and all of a sudden, you see the whole department start to turn over. And usually, it's because I find that people are micromanagers. That's one of the biggest things. And then and there's some people that set you unrealistic expectations, uh, you know, and for no other better term, there's just some people are just poor leaders and they're jerks and people don't want to work for them, uh, you know, but it's, it's really about that first line supervisor and middle level manager, because that's where the vast majority of people in an organization report to. And it's my philosophy that to the average employee, the supervisor is the company because they don't usually see their boss's boss or don't interact with their boss's boss day in and day out. It's their boss. And, you know, I, I've seen the number, 75% of the people say the worst thing about their job is their boss. Hmm. And that's why people leave. Yeah, they, they usually leave because of the boss, in my opinion. It's interesting. You, you went on to say good bosses, they'll not necessarily manage by walking around, but they'll be more visible. How do you, as a, especially in this day and age where there's the, you know, the knowledge worker where we behind computers, how do you stay in front of people so that way, you know, they feel connected with their supervisor? I tell supervisors when I train in what I call crap leadership, I tell people, you got to get out of your office. It doesn't matter if a person is, uh, is a software developer. If they're working in the cube, the difference between a factory versus a cube environment, it's a cube factory. And you got to wander around. You got to talk with your people. You got to poke your head in the cube and say, how's it going? Anything exciting happening? You know, again, just you've got to make conversation with people. I equate working in a cube is no different than a machinist working at a machine. They're in a yeah. defined area and you got to, and you got to be visible. So what's an appropriate way to do that without really interrupting their workflow, especially somebody who's on a factory floor where they you know, their safety concerns a little bit. You come and interrupt somebody while they're working with machinery. What's the, you know, what's an appropriate way to, to really interrupt somebody and just make sure that you still have that connection. You can usually tell if, if somebody is preoccupied, at least I always could when I was an HR professional, you can see if somebody's preoccupied, they got their head in the machine, you're not going to bother those folks. Or even when somebody's, you know, they might be doing some coding and they're working in the cube, it's instinctual. You can tell when, when someone is in, engrossed in a task, you just leave them alone. I talk about strolling through a facility. You don't have any particular route, but you're wandering around and you'll find plenty of people that as you walk by will say hi to you and it creates an opportunity to have conversation. Typically for like the office worker nowadays where, you know, the knowledge worker sitting behind a computer, are you like in the open office space where now you can see people a little bit more and, and conversations tend to happen a little bit more? Do you like that versus kind of cubicle land? I guess I never thought about it because I've worked in both environments. Mm -hmm. Even if people are in an open area, you can tell if people are engrossed in a task. But I don't know that it, it matters because I find that the supervisors who are going to wander around and talk to people are the ones that are going to get out of their office. And I mean, and, and yeah, when we still do have offices, particularly when you start talking to managers, unless you've gone to a totally collaborative environment and total open concept type of environment, you still got to get out of your office and talk to your people. And now for a quick break to talk about Zenium's third annual What People Want From Work survey. Are your employees happy at work? Here's one way to find out. There's nothing better than open, honest, and anonymous feedback, which is why Zenium created the What People Want From Work survey, which is open to employers of all sizes for free. This 20-question employee survey reveals what people really want from their workplace, and it provides insights around leadership, workplace culture, management support, 
rewards and recognition, and work environment. Employers can sign up for free June 20th, 2017 until July 31st, 2017 at zenimhr.com. And the link is in the show notes so you can get right to the page. And now back to the program. So you have this methodology called CRAP or, or C-R-A-P. What, what does that stand for? And I imagine it has something to do with the supervisors. CRAP stands for Caring, Respect, Appreciation, and Praise. And that's one of the key components in driving employee retention. When I do my program called Give Your Employees Crap and Seven Other Secrets to Employee Retention, there are seven other key factors that drive employee retention. But caring, respect, appreciation, and praise are at the heart of it. If you're not giving your people crap uh, and showing them that you appreciate them for what they do, praising them when they exceed expectations, demonstrating that you care, and, and, and again, giving people respect, you're going to lose people because it's different than it was 25 years ago. People just won't tolerate that anymore. In your book, you had a really nice definition for uh, the difference between respect and appreciation. Can you, for listeners, just mention that? I I thought it was just a nice definition. Everybody deserves basic Mm -hmm. respect. I mean, that's part of, I consider, human dignity. Showing appreciation is telling people when they do a good job. So if someone gets you the the report in a timely manner, you say, hey, thanks very much. Mm -hmm. Do appreciate it. Again, you say something to them. And then I'll even take it a step further. When people exceed expectations, we've gone praise crazy with the young generation to the extent that there's this need for praise. And when I I do my crap leadership system, I tell uh, supervisors that appreciation is telling somebody when they do a good job. Praise is when they exceed expectations and should only be given out when they exceed expectations. On the appreciation side... You mentioned for the younger generation, they, they're always wanting the feedback. Have you seen some pretty unique ways of showing appreciation either you know, in a public or private setting? I think the key to showing appreciation is to personalize it and, and not be robotic about it. Again, I, I think you just got to personalize it and explain why it was important, but not get into any big lavish presentation as to what it, what it was. It's really the personal touch that makes appreciation worthwhile and accepted by employees. And it has to be sincere. Yeah, it seems like like in the moment, specificity around like what they did that was so great would be really important because that'll stick in the back of their mind. Like, oh my gosh, I, I, I killed it on this one. And, and they'd want to keep doing it. I've seen statistics that 50% of the people out there do not feel appreciated. That's a scary statistic. And it's yeah. not just young people. It's all people. I mean, we just tend to have an old school thought process. Well, you know, if you don't hear anything from me, you know you're doing a good job. But that doesn't <laughs> That's an cut old it school anymore. model. Yeah, I don't like that. <laughs> you mentioned in the book, just moving along to compensation a little bit, you mentioned that employers should really reduce the importance that pay plays in the retention equation. What did you mean by that? We tend to use pay as an excuse. We yeah. always say, oh, somebody, they, they got a, a, another job and they got paid more money. Usually what it is, is there's some precipitating event that gets a person looking for a new job. And then they wait until they get a job that pays them more money. And then they'll come in and say, well, I got a job for more money. It wasn't money that drove the decision to look. They just got more money in the process. I emphasize to my clients that you need to pay competitively and you need to make sure that you're in tune with what's going on in the market. But don't use money as an excuse. And, and that's the thing that always concerns me is that a lot of organizations tend to use money as, as an excuse or supervisors use money as an excuse when there's other factors that really drive what precipitates someone to start looking. 
So it's interesting, like with a top performer, what do you recommend employers do for pay? You know, like what's fair in your mind? If you're going to keep those top talented people, you got to pay them, right? So what's fair in your mind? It really depends on the environment. I I used to have a a benchmark that a a top performer should be making at least 10% more than an average performer. And you use the term fair. I mentioned to my clients all the time is you want to be fair, not equal. And in a fair Mm -hmm. environment, top performers get paid more. If you pay your Clydesdales the same as you pay your donkeys, (laughs) the Clydesdales will know it because people always talk about money or people find out about it. And before you know it, what happens is the Clydesdale says, look, I'm pulling the wagon, the donkey's doing nothing, and I'm getting paid the same as the donkey. And then what happens is your Clydesdales leave and all you're left with are donkeys. You hate the word rewards when referring to compensation. Why is that? Let's face it. I guess maybe, (laughs) maybe I'm old school. We go to work to get paid. I don't know that we go to work to get rewarded. I consider, you know, pay. It's, it's pay. It's yeah. pay for doing a job. I've never liked the term total rewards. Employees laugh when they hear the term reward. Saying, what? You mean I'm being rewarded for showing up for work? Come on. Part of me thinks like the reward is maybe just a reward for your production level or something. And maybe that's why it's kind of caught on. But yeah, I get, I totally get what you're saying. I, just, I kind of wanted to just pull the thread on that and see if it's, it's popping up a lot. Like the total rewards thing, it's, I see it more and more. So I wanted to see what the, you know, why that started and if, if you knew any background on that. Being a former HR professional, we tend to use buzzwords. And the buzzwords, oftentimes, they have a disconnect with our employees. Our employees are thinking one thing, and maybe, maybe we want them to think rewards, but most people think pay, pay and benefits. On the benefits side, there typically has been like a one-size-fits-all benefit offering to employees. And I think more and more people want unique benefits. They want flexibility. They want, you know, maybe short-term or long-term disability policies. They want they want control over their work, but they also want to be able to enjoy some of the other benefits. What, what's your take on the one-size-fits-all versus some of the unique things that employers are offering nowadays? Well, I, I think one-size-fits-all, what you're doing then is you're spending money in, in areas that uh, may not add any value from a retention standpoint. So the more flexibility in, in, in benefits that you can offer so people can pick and choose what they want makes sense for them. What you want to do is you're paying benefits, you want them to be competitive so that you take that component out of the equation because unless you're paying competitively, you're going to have problems. But you, so you want to take that out of the equation so you can concentrate on all the other things that don't cost you a dime to do. When it comes to people who are non-performers and people know it, could that kill retention for some of the top performers? Absolutely. Again, the Clydesdales, they don't want to be carrying yeah. the donkeys. It drives them crazy. And when you're sitting next to somebody who's a non-performer day in and day out, you get angry and you look at your supervisor and, and it destroys supervisory credibility because the reaction of people who see non-performers being tolerated, they look at their supervisor and say, look, this person is either clueless or they don't care. And and either of those are deadly from a credibility perspective with a supervisor or manager, because you need that credibility in order to be able to lead your people and get your people to follow you. So on a similar note, you you actually made a really nice metaphor uh, for culture fit and how it impacts retention. You had mentioned like, you know, having a size seven shoe, but you're really a size eight, but you can fit into the size seven shoe. But after a while, your feet just start hurting really bad and it just doesn't work out. And so you end up having to throw it away and get a new shoe. How's culture fit going to impact retention, you know, from that perspective? 
Well, culture fit is, is actually the very start of employee retention because fit is the most important component of success on the job. It's not skills because if you have talented people, they can learn skills. But if they don't fit in the environment, they're going to be out of place. If you've got somebody as an example who is, I use the analogy, somebody who's top gun, used to a fast-paced environment, and they go to an organization that's very methodical, mm-hmm. it will drive that person crazy. And it's only a matter of time before the person is going crazy and says, I, I got to get out of this place. Or the organization looks at Top Gun and says, this guy's a bull in a china shop because they just don't fit in. And so making sure you have fit on the front end is the perfect way to start your retention process. Because if you get the right people, then you can work on the other factors that drive employee retention. It's so interesting because it seems to me like to make sure that you have the fit, for one, your interviewing process has to be buttoned up. You got to ask the right questions and just to make sure that there's their culture alignment. But you know, I'm, I don't know if you knew this, Jeff, but I'm, I'm in marketing. I work for an HR consulting firm. So the employer brand is something that we talk a lot about. We develop one for ourselves. We're helping clients with it. It's something that I feel like to make sure that you have culture fit, you really have to put your culture on display to make sure that any candidates walking in the door know exactly what they're getting into. What's your whole thought on the employer brand when it comes to culture fit later on? First and foremost, from a recruitment standpoint, if you have a poor brand, because you want people coming to you as opposed to you having to go out and seek them out. You want to have a brand that people seek and come to you. But if you're displaying your brand as one thing and it's not correct. People will join the organization thinking the brand is one thing or the culture is one thing and then they find out that they don't fit uh, or the organization finds out that they don't fit. That's why I'm a big believer in full disclosure. I, I, I believe that candor is important in the hiring process and employees like that. I, I believe that candor sells because a lot of organizations try to snow employees yeah. in order to get them to join the organization. And that's the last thing you want to do because that's how you get bad fit. So as we kind of wrap up this discussion, I wanted to just overall ask you, HR managers need to start somewhere from the retention thing. Where, where do they start? What are the most important factors when it comes to retaining your top talented people? Crap is, is really yeah. at the heart of it. And, 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 and the people that drive crap are your leaders within the organization. And I'm talking first-line supervisors, managers. If you don't have a core of people who care about their folks, who respect them, can show that they you know, appreciate what they do and, and praise them, you're in trouble. You, know, you want to have supervisors and managers that give their people crap. And that should be the starting point. And then from there, you can work on all the other aspects that drive employee retention. Awesome, Jeff. I really appreciate you joining us for the podcast. Where can people learn more about what you're doing? You, you write on LinkedIn. I know that. You've got a couple books. What do you want to tell the listeners? Go to uh, www.jeffcortes, that's spelled K-O-R-T-E-S, dot com, and you can see all the various things that I do from a standpoint of, of speaking to organizations, training, consulting, pretty much whatever solution people need in order to get a handle on their employee retention because it is going to be the issue of the upcoming decade, and it's going to be a survival issue. It's beyond just money. It's about survival. I went to your website before we hopped on and I watched your your video of you speaking and it's just a very nice inspirational video and I think it's it's really powerful. And I love I love seeing you in action too. You're it looks like you're an amazing speaker. So I encourage people to go go check that out and, and see what you're up to. I love to talk crap to organizations. So you know, I'm passionate about it and uh, as I tell people, crap works. 
Amazing. Thanks, Jeff. Appreciate the time. All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Human Resources for Small Business podcast. Subscribe to this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, be sure to check out our blog at www.zeniumhr.com forward slash blog and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn to hear about the latest in HR and leadership. The information on today's episode is for educational purposes only and should not be taken as legal or customized advice for you or your organization. This podcast is hosted and fully produced by Brandon Laws, that's me, and created and owned by Zenium Resources, Inc. For more information or to contact us, visit www.zeniumhr.com.